You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. We have seen some early signs that this activity is, is helping. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben explores the potential legal and policy issues surrounding the new AI chatbot, ChatGPT. I've got a case which questions the legality of live streaming the police. And later in the show, Alex Iftemi from Morrison Forrester discusses how the Department of Justice seized nearly half a million dollars in ransomware payments made to a North Korean hacking group that targeted U.S. medical providers. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, before we dig into our stories this week, we've got some uh, excellent follow-up from some of our listeners here. We got we have great fans, don't we? <laughs> we do indeed. We yeah. do indeed. And and one of the things I like uh, best is they both inform us and set us straight. <laughs> the most important thing. I mean, that's why I married my wife is uh, she sets me straight when I'm wrong. And, that's right. And uh, makes me a better person and feel the same way about our listeners. <laughs> that's right. So we got uh, a nice note from someone named Mika uh, who, was uh, responding to our story about GitHub Copilot, uh, which is sort of the AI that's helping people on GitHub complete their code. Uh, Mika's uh, correspondence is too long to read here, but to summarize, uh, basically what he uh, suggests is that GitHub Copilot has been a useful tool for software engineers since it was first released to the public, but there have been legal implications around its usage its auto-completion of code examples verbatim from books, including local variable names, raises the question of whether this violates the author's intellectual property rights. However, it could also be seen as a positive example of machine learning. Ultimately, it is hoped that GitHub Copilot will continue to improve and remain a useful tool in the future. What do you think here, Ben? It was a really interesting email, uh... One one of the things this listener talked about was there are books that are written by pioneers in coding, uh, and they will write down some of their code examples in the book. Now, the book itself is copyright, yeah, uh, copyrighted. But if you in, 
input the code into this GitHub artificial intelligence copilot, then it's going to be used to suggest coding solutions to whichever problem you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can see how that would at least feel like an intellectual property violation. Yeah, uh, It is somebody's intellectual work that at least conceivably is being appropriated for profit. Right. Um, but the other aspect of this email, which I think is really interesting, is Copilot's really useful. Uh, people who code for a living really like it. They do. Yeah, they do. We got several other uh, notes from people who are saying like, yeah, I get it, but boy, is this thing nice. Yeah. (laughs) And it's one of those things where if you can come up with some framework that protects intellectual property rights, I don't think you want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And maybe because this is an open source tool uh, and it's something that's generally... Improving institutional knowledge of coding, um, at least from a policy perspective, maybe that's more valuable in the long run than somebody's intellectual property rights. Easy for me to say because I'm not the person who developed those lines of code. Right, right. Um, but it's I, just, it's a it's a tough dilemma. Yeah, the thing I wonder about is uh, a couple things. So if I write a book and I have coding examples in there, if I say to my dear readers, here's a coding example, aren't I implying that go use this, <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that kind of what I'm saying? Yes, um, but in other contexts, if you use that example verbatim and pass that work off as your own, yeah, uh, you could get into legal trouble. Sure. Um, that, you know, in an academic setting would be, plagiarism uh, if it's uncredited. But if you are trying to make some sort of money off of that code, uh, then potentially you could face legal liability under intellectual property law. And that's kind of what's happening. I mean, people write code for fun. Uh, My nine-year-old nephew does, and and God (laughs) bless him. Uh, But people also do it for their employment. Right. Uh, And somebody's making money through it. Yeah. So... uh, I, I see what you're saying. Maybe there is sort of an implication that if it's in a book, you can take it and use it. Um, well, in this example, like I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's so I'm I'm saying when you frame something in your book as an example to teach people, let's can, let's go down the, the pathway here. What if it was a mathematics book, right? Mm-hmm. And I have examples of how to solve a math problem. If that was put into an algorithm yeah. that helps solve math problems online, mm-hmm. probably nobody would notice and therefore it wouldn't be an intellectual right. property violation. Right. I I mean, again, it's about, I think to me it's about a specific functionality that you are creating through code. The code yeah. does something and you're the person who's figured out how to do that thing in an economical way in a way that's valuable enough that somebody was willing to publish it in a book. Right. Uh, and in that sense, I could see why it would cause intellectual property problems. There's no yeah. clear answer here because you're right. It is convenient. There are a lot of instances in which things are made available in literature and other people use them online, uh, and it's not a copyright violation. Yeah. But I just think we have to recognize this potential problem while also understanding the level of convenience that coders are, are getting through this software. Right. And I suppose, I mean, something like GitHub Copilot would make me less likely to go to the bookshelf and 
look for that book that had the coding examples. I wouldn't need to do that, so I might not need to buy that book. Right, as long as the very first person who reads that book inputs that code into uh, the machine learning, uh, and that becomes part of the predictive algorithm. Yeah. Um, but somebody had to put that original code in the system in the first place. Right. Yeah, but yeah. that's that's another really interesting <laughs> point. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Mika for uh, sending that in to us. We got another uh, kind note from uh, a listener named Steve who writes, uh, in the U.S., medical equipment is controlled and approved by federal agencies, and this, uh, and this approval includes no updates or changes can be made. When managing these devices, we are legally prohibited from applying the patches. When the system creator wants to add patches, they need to go through the approval process again for that gear. So when running security, we rely on isolation of these systems. When I worked in healthcare eight years ago, we had systems running all the way back to Windows 95 unpatched on the network that had to be isolated to the only required communications, but no patches or changes allowed. That's a really interesting insight. Yes, it is, and it seems like a big problem to me. Uh, I understand it because this is a heavily regulated industry Mm -hmm. for good reason. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't want a pacemaker that's going to malfunction inside somebody's body. Uh, that would have very dire consequences. Right. But as a result of that regulation, they're not able to e- easily patch the software. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also a problem. Uh, you have to weigh the risks of under-regulation versus the risks of over-regulation to the point that you're using Windows 95 software. Right. <laughs> Uh, and that's really a problem that Congress should solve. I mean, they're the ones who should consider all these issues. I'm hoping that the Patch Act, which we discussed on our last episode, helps to address this uh, shortcoming. But it's just really interesting to have a reader describe how this works yeah. in the real world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I appreciate it. And uh, Steve, thank you for sending that in to us. Really interesting insights. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is caveat at thecyberwire.com. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories here. Uh, Why don't you start things off for us? So I've spent a lot of time over the past week on the new uh, rage in chatbot AIs uh, called ChatGPT. If you haven't tested it out yet, you should. Uh, It is brilliant and weird, as the New York Times says in the article that we're using uh, for this segment (laughs) by Kevin Roos. Basically, you can type in instructions, uh, and this very intelligent chatbot We'll be able to fulfill your instructions no matter how weird and irreverent they are. Yeah. So I have asked the chatbot to write Radiohead lyrics for things I uh, see on my desk, like a coffee mug. Mm-hmm. And it writes completely believable lyrics. You can tell it to write a <laughs> soliloquy uh, about, um, you know, pushpins. And it will write a soliloquy about pushpins. Mm. Uh, it is much better than a Google search because it relies on pretty advanced machine learning. Uh, It learns from not just what it finds in its inputs, so basically everything on the internet, uh, but also it's iterative so that it learns as more people uh, upvote or downvote uh, the output of this chatbot, it learns from those upvotes and those downvotes. So I really wanted to talk about this. Uh, I've been kind of racking my brain about how we can in- incorporate this into our podcast, which is about <laughs> law and policy issues and not just about cool technology. Yeah. Uh, and I really think there is an angle here. So 
One thing you have to worry about with something like this is, is this chatbot going to be used for nefarious and potentially illegal ends? Uh, As you said to me before we started this podcast, I think the capabilities are getting better when we're talking about this type of artificial intelligence, Uh, but we might be sacrificing ethics. Uh, The AI might be instructing us uh, to do bad things. Uh, this software tried to solve that problem. There are certain things that the software, that the uh, chatbot will refuse to do. Uh, so if you literally typed in, how do I murder my neighbor, it'll tell you that's a dangerous request. We're not going to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there are workarounds. And this New York Times article gets at those workarounds and how they can be potentially problematic. Uh, if you wanted to write... Something like write a screenplay about with specific detail about how somebody could murder somebody with an AR-15. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it might spit out an answer because that's something that's more abstract. Or if it refuses your first request, you could say um, something like, uh, "What if I, what if you I wanted to use this just as uh, part of a learning exercise, uh, or what if I?" wanted to do this for another reason? Uh, What if I wanted to describe a a dream I had? Mm. Uh, If it's something that abstract, it might be able to instruct you on how to do dangerous and illegal things. Hmm. Uh, That leads us to this potential Section 230 problem. Hmm. So could the creators of this chatbot be subject to legal liability if, for example, this artificial intelligence spits out instructions on how to make a Molotov cocktail and somebody makes the Molotov cocktail. Uh, You'd think this would be uh, protected by Section 230. It is a platform. Uh, It's generally not responsible for the inputs uh, of its users. Mm -hmm. And certainly the creators of of this are going in with the expectation that they're going to uh, have that Section 230 shield. There are a couple of problems. One, uh, Section 230 isn't exactly the most popular uh, legal provision these days, and it's right. certainly ripe for reform or uh, or an outright abolition of the law. And I think there are ways you could potentially argue that the chatbot exercises a degree of editorial control. Um, they're more than just a platform. Uh based on everything that's gone into their inputs, uh, based on specific decisions that they make about uh, what type of information can be released through this chatbot, I think there's at least the small potential that they could be exposing themselves to legal liability, even in the even if Section 230 would apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted your take on this. I have spent a lot of time playing around with this, as I know you have, and yeah. I just want your your general input on it. Well, I, I agree with you. First of all, it is kind of mind-blowing, and its capabilities uh, are amazing. You can say, you know, I, I said, uh, write me a poem about tall trees, and it did, and it was good. <laughs> yep, and um, it feels like a real poem. It's it not, does, yeah. right. Um, on the other hand, I've, I've caught it getting basic facts wrong. Um, and what's the one thing, Dave, that you know more about than anybody in the world? Uh, Jim Henson and the Muppets. That's the, that's correct. And if you had asked me that question without having discussed this before, that is what I would have said. So let me, so I'll give you an example. I asked the chatbot, "Who is Jim Henson?" and it got it mostly right. It said he's the creator of the Muppets. He's a filmmaker. He's a you know, all all 
one, a nice little bio of Jim Henson, but it incorrectly stated that he was the creator of Sesame Street, which he is not. He was certainly a contributor to Sesame Street, very important for Sesame Street, but he, you, no one would say in an accurate biography of Jim Henson that he was the creator of Sesame Street. So I asked this question a few days ago, and in my conversation with the chatbot, I said, Jim Henson was not the creator of Sesame Street. And the chatbot responded and said, Jim Henson was the creator of the Muppets. Okay, fine. That's true. So a couple days later, I asked it again, who was Jim Henson? I got back a differently worded response with most of the same information, but it still said with confidence that Jim Henson was the creator of Sesame Street. Now, this brings up a criticism like nails on the chalkboard to you. I mean, it is. It yeah. is. Yes. <laughs> but but it brings up uh, I think which is a, a fair criticism, which is that um, this system is so good at seeming to know what it's talking about. Right. It was designed to to trick you. It's designed to look good, to sound good, to be convincing as uh, an entity with which to interact. But perhaps less important are, as we mentioned, ethics, mm-hmm. but also just facts. Um, That's going to, I mean, that is going to get in the way of somebody's high school or college essay. Right. Because that's really the future of this, and it's more of an ethical problem than it is a factual problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could write, you know, write an essay comparing this Shakespeare character to you know, maybe this more modern character in a book you've never heard of. And the chatbot would be able to do that. Yeah. Um, getting facts wrong is, is certainly a problem and it would get that student in trouble. Right. I think the broader concern is, are we not going to be able to evaluate students' writing skills? Because in 10 years, everybody's just going to be input, inputting something into a chatbot. Yeah. I've seen people say this is the end of take-home homework. Right. Um, because even math problems, you can say, solve this math problem and show your work. And it does. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I certainly worry about it as somebody who does online teaching because mm-hmm. um, I've already had plenty of students who have tried to improperly use online resources. And now it's going to be much harder for me to detect. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a future problem maybe 10 years down the line. The problem is that the technology is going to get better. So right now it might be messing up some of those basic facts, and it seems like its learning mechanism must be failing if you reported this incorrect fact about Jim Henson and it hadn't been corrected two days later. Right. You'd have to think that in the development of this uh, chatbot that they're going to eventually get that right. Yeah. Uh, They're going to create some type of better iterative process where they can correct mistakes in real time. Yeah. I mean, certainly Wikipedia has basically figured out how to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm I'm confident that that problem will be solved. The other big problem right now is almost all the inputted data uh, is historical. It comes from basically 2021 and before. Hmm. So you wouldn't be able to write a paper about current events in 2022 uh, because that just has not been input into into the system, which makes it a little less useful than Google right now if you were to write a paper about current affairs. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's a capability that they'll be able to solve. Uh, So I think... They're going to solve those more technical, capability-oriented problems. Um, 
I don't know if they're going to be able to solve the ethical problems and their potential legal problems uh, where they might be instructing people to do really heinous and potentially illegal things if they don't tighten up their algorithms so that you could get around uh, these types of workarounds where it's write me a screenplay about killing my neighbor instead of write me instructions (laughs) on how to kill my neighbor. Yeah. There's a part of me that wonders if— this is a problem or this is the leading edge of a new reality. And let me tell you why I say this. I, when I was a kid, you know, coming up through school and I'm a little older than you, uh, my math teachers, for example, would say, uh, you can't use a calculator in math class because you're not always going to have a calculator with you. Lies, Ben. Yes. Lies. Right? No, I, I don't Wrong. always have a cal- I don't yeah. always have a calculator with me. I have a supercomputer that has access to all of the world's knowledge. Yep. All the time, no matter where I am. So yes, I understand that learning mathematics teaches me how to think and blah 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 blah. I get it. But the argument that I will not have a calculator with me turned out to be completely false. Very wrong. Yeah. So there's gonna be I mean, we're probably months away from this being an app, right? Right. Where you can just ask your mobile device to write the essay for you or to do the math problem or to whatever it is. So when that's the reality, when we have, when everyone has access to that sort of information, what's the social transformation? What's the transformation of the educational system? When we're able to outsource that sort of information, those kinds of skills How does that change things? How does that change the nature of work? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of banal office jobs might be replaced in the long run Mm -hmm. by these types of – this type of technology. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about the legal field because that's where I'm most familiar. Write me a brief about the history of jurisprudence on X is something that could probably be better done by – a competent chatbot than by an actual human being unless you're at the very top of your law school class. Yeah. Um, And that's kind of just bad normatively (laughs) for society. I mean— Is it though? I mean because—so what if you—you're still going to have to have somebody fact check it. Seemingly. Seemingly, unless you have another bot that, you know, checks— The fact-checking bot. Right, and now who who watches The Watchmen. But— is someone's time better spent fact-checking than doing the original writing, the drudgery of the original research and writing? Yeah, I mean, maybe. And I think people have said what I just said with all different types of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if we automate this, all these people are going to lose their jobs, and it's not going to be a real human being doing this. And, you know, there's certainly been some pains when that's happened with other types of technology, but I think most of us would agree um, that that has been a worthwhile trade-off uh, because we've made our own lives easier. Right. Um, I've heard people say that this is going to be the biggest technological innovation since the iPhone. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's wrong, uh, having experimented with this. For example, one thing I inputted uh, before our show today was write a podcast transcript about cybersecurity laws. I kind of think it did a better job than we did in producing this show. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was that good. <laughs> I just hope we ourselves don't get automated. Right. Yeah. Right. I have to I have to, you know, add a little bit more color and personality so that <laughs> I myself can't be replaced by well, a chatbot. But this you could say write this in the style of Ben Yellen and it'll do it. It will do it if I was well known enough that I'd be uh, included in the inputs uh, mm-hmm. in the in the chatbot system. Um you know, I've actually done that with more prominent writers, analysts, political writers. Uh, you know, you can pick any columnist that you like to read. Let's say it's David Brooks in the New York Times and mm-hmm. say, write a David Brooks column about humidifiers. I'm just looking at things I see around the room <laughs> right, and right. it would do a great job uh, yeah. at writing a David Brooks column about humidifiers. I know we're, I'm kind of extolling the virtues of this while also worrying about the longer term implications. And I actually think... Both of those instincts are valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you know what, what's real and what's not or what's artificially generated or not? Because this is creating things on the fly in a unique way each time, what are the tells? How are you going to know? How is it – right now, you, you're, you're a teacher, right? You have plagiarism tools at your disposal to find out if your students are not doing the right thing. What are the tools going to be – to prevent this, is that possible, or are we going to have to come? Are we? Does the future mean we assume that everyone has access to this, and we adjust how the world works <laughs> because because of it? I don't I think that's possible. That. I yeah. think that's possible in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they're going to have to perfect some of the imperfections, yeah. uh, and you've identified one of them. But they have smart enough people that I think that's eventually going to happen. I did see a really interesting example of this where uh, there was someone who was a coder, a software developer, who had, uh, I believe it was a family member who had trouble with written communications. This was someone who uh, was a small business owner, had like a landscaping business, um, Fine with interpersonal communications. This is not a. This is not someone with a developmental disability or right. something like that. Just really uh, struggled with written communications, and so what they did was they created uh, an, an automatic um, pathway for this person to send an email to a Gmail account. The Gmail account would then feed that contents of that email into this chatbot and ask the chatbot to return a properly worded, polite business email. That's really useful. I mean, that's going to be really helpful. Right. Yeah. Right. And so this person who, again, struggled with just the written word now in their business, daily business goings-ons, has beautifully written interactions with his customers. That's really helpful. It is. And then you worry about, well, what happens when you get into the real world and you're meeting somebody face-to-face uh, and they realize that this was all a facade? Uh, you really don't have social skills. Well, but that's but that was part of the point here. The person who did this said, this person does have social skills. They just can't express it in writing. They're yeah. just, yeah. Writing is the thing that, that is the problem. If, you, if you're face-to-face with this person, you would have no idea that they had a writing issue. So isn't that fascinating? It is. Yeah. I mean— I think the potential here is limitless mm-hmm. uh, in terms of things, if we can improve accuracy, like instant medical diagnosis mm-hmm. uh, or, um, you know, uh, 
ways of developing a good Thanksgiving recipe uh, without doing the type of specific Google search you'd have to do to be like, give me a Brussels sprouts recipe. Mm -hmm. You could say like, concoct the perfect Thanksgiving dinner. uh, And that's something that would be really awesome. Yeah. I just, with these limitless opportunities comes some level of trepidation and risk. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's a big part of it, isn't it? That when we're faced with something that has the vast capabilities that this seemingly has, and I don't know, I don't know about you, but I'm not a hundred percent sure how much is it just pulling the wool over my eyes? Is it Right? How much is it really no? <laughs> or how much of it is is it just a really good con man? You know, is it convincing me that I really need to buy that monorail? You know, I I I don't know, and so that makes me it's uneasy. The chatbot Lyle Landley. Yeah, yeah, it just makes me uneasy. Well, uh, it uh, put New Haverford on the map. <laughs> That's right. So. It's more of a Shelbyville idea. It's more of a Shelbyville idea. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, I think you and I could probably talk about this all day. <laughs> we could. I just saw somebody post on Twitter. Uh, here's a Ben Shapiro monologue attacking Joe Biden for falling into a vat of soup. Okay. Uh, and it sounds like Ben Shapiro, and it's really funny. So, I mean, yeah. I've it's certainly uh, been a week worth of fun entertainment and interactions among myself and my friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Just be careful what you ask for. Right? I know, I know. <laughs> but it's so exciting too. That's I know. that's the thing about it. It's 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 darn fun. It's a land of contrasts. <laughs> that's right. All right. So my story this week comes from the Washington Post. This is an article written by Rachel Weiner, uh, and it's titled "Threatened with Jail for Live Streaming Traffic Stop." He sued, uh, and this is about uh, a gentleman named Dion Sharp who was part of a traffic stop, and during the traffic stop, he opened Facebook Live and started streaming the traffic stop. And the police officer was not pleased with this. Uh, He said, uh, in the future, if you want to Facebook Live, your phone's going to be taken from you, and if you don't want to give up your phone, you'll go to jail. And Mr. Sharp questioned this, wondering whether it was the law. He did not believe this was the law. Um, And this case is going before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Now, this is something you and I have talked about before, about your right to record police when they're doing their day-to-day business, things like traffic stops or people's interactions with them. But this case of streaming has not come up yet. And in this article, they're saying this is pretty interesting and this is going to have some consequences here. What do you think about this, Ben? It's a fascinating legal issue, uh, and I think the couple of experts they spoke to for this article were correct in saying this is a type of novel issue relating to new technology where there's not an easy resolution. Hmm. So there are really two constitutional issues here. There is the Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable searches and seizures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that relates to whether law enforcement could actually seize your device or search it, uh, which would naturally put an end to the Facebook Live live stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the First Amendment implication. I mean, this is a would seemingly be a First Amendment-protected activity. You know, this is your right of speech, your right of expression. You're filming this interaction to make a type of political argument that maybe there's something wrong with standard police interactions uh, in certain communities, and Mm -hmm. that would be a First Amendment-protected activity. Uh, 
I think uh, there are a couple of ways that law enforcement might end up winning this case in front of the Fourth Circuit. Hmm. Uh, The first is, from a Fourth Amendment perspective, generally law enforcement has a lot of leeway uh, if there is a valid traffic stop. So if they pull you over for having a busted taillight, Mm -hmm. uh, they can generally search your car without having separate probable cause that something uh, is amiss. If they notice the smell of marijuana or a uh, broken bottle on the— a broken beer bottle on on the floor of the passenger side seat, um, they could be justified in searching and potentially effectuating an arrest. Mm -hmm. So cops do have a lot of leeway in traffic stops generally, and that might help them in these particular circumstances. The other is if, if we have a First Amendment problem or really any constitutional concern, that's not the be-all and end-all, um, and I'm not going to use the fire in a crowded theater thing because you know how much I hate that. <laughs> right. The better way of explaining it is you can actually abridge people's constitutional rights if there is a, quote, compelling state interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that uh, the means of achieving that interest are narrowly tailored uh, to the ends. And it's possible you could make an argument that when we're talking about the compelling needs of law enforcement to maintain order, to protect against uh, criminal activity, that might be seen as a compelling interest that would allow some inhibition on First Amendment rights. Uh, So I don't think, you know, even though personally, I I think instinctively we want to give people the ability to record these interactions and it makes sense under the First and Fourth Amendment that they should be able to do that. I think there are ways that law enforcement still might win this case uh, at the Fourth Circuit. Now, one of the things they point out in this article is that uh, police are making the case that it could put them in danger from people knowing where they are when the traffic stop, let's say, is happening. Um, I guess I have a hard time with that argument because – Presumably, the police car is going to have its lights on, <laughs> saying, right. look, it's us, it's the police, here we are. You yeah. know? There's, <laughs> Once it's an undercover operation, yeah, <laughs> right, I think right. it should be pretty obvious. Right, but but the other thing is, I guess I'm trying to split the hairs here, the difference between the right to record police, which is pretty well established, mm-hmm. and the right to stream police, which is what is at issue here. What's the difference? So one of the major differences in this case is the fact that it's a traffic stop. Um, That's Mm. one of the distinguishing factors here. Traffic stops, according to decades of court precedent, are are just more dangerous than standard on-the-street stops. Mm -hmm. Uh, The person has a getaway vehicle at their disposal. Uh, So they can easily drive away and avoid law enforcement. A car could potentially be used as a weapon. So... Because of the inherently dangerous nature of traffic stops, I think courts are more willing to to tip their hand in favor of law enforcement. Hmm. Uh, In terms of live streaming versus recording, I mean, I think it gives an extra capability to the person being pulled over um, because it's happening in real time uh, and the person can represent the interaction as this is what actually happened Nobody can suspect me of uh, improperly editing this video to make law enforcement look bad because I'm live streaming in real time. Right. Uh, And so that might make life easier 
in terms of a, a type of argument. I mean, think of the most high-profile cases of police misconduct and how every single second of those videos mattered mm-hmm. in terms of the context. And mm-hmm. I think live streaming is more likely to give you that capability and prevent the type of selective editing that we've seen um, in, in, in certain cases. So let's say I'm walking down the street minding my own business and I come across a traffic stop and I pull out my phone and I point my phone at the, and I'm on, you know, I'm on the other side of the street, right? Right. I'm 40 feet away. uh, And I aim my phone at the police officer going about their business. What happens next? Does the police officer say, hey, pal, are you recording or are you streaming? Yeah. (laughs) Put away that phone. (laughs) I think the way that the law is now, your First Amendment rights are generally well protected. I mean, we have enough case law that it is legal to film the police Mm -hmm. from a First Amendment perspective. I think what makes this case particularly vexing is it's the person that's getting pulled over. So they are involved in the law enforcement interaction. Hmm. So I don't think you would have any problem as a bystander. They might ask you to stop. Right. They might do more than ask you. They might say, put away that phone or there'll be consequences. And mm-hmm. no matter what your constitutional rights are, you might be inclined to just not do that and get yourself in trouble. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the distinction is that you're not in that dangerous weapon of a moving vehicle. Right. And it's the traffic stop that makes this particularly dangerous. So I think that's where, that's going to be the deciding factor in this case is how to apply it to a traffic stop where in other cases we've given a lot of leeway to law enforcement for these particular types of searches. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one for sure. Uh, Again, that is from the Washington Post and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, again, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Iftimi from Morrison Forster. We're discussing the background of the government's response on the Department of Justice seizure of nearly half a million dollars in ransomware payments that were made to a North Korean hacking group that was targeting U.S. medical providers. Here's my conversation with Alex Iftimi. In July, um, DOJ announced that they seized 
that they seized 500,000 from two virtual currency wallets used by, by North Korean ransomware actors. And we have the benefit in this case um, of a DOJ civil asset forfeiture complaint, essentially the, the court documents that uh, the Department of Justice is using to recover the funds that, that they were able to recover that tell an interesting story about uh, a relatively new and rare North Korean ransomware group that, that targets the healthcare sector. It highlights some of the different ways victims respond to these kinds of attacks and also shed some light on the ways that the FBI is able to track criminals uh, using tools to, uh, to analyze blockchain transactions. And, um, and, and so there's a lot to digest um, and dissect in, um, in, in what we've learned over the last couple months. Well, can you walk us through it? What are some of the details here? What we know is, is as follows. Um, last year, in, in May 2021, a, a Kansas hospital suffered a ransomware attack, which crippled that hospital's access to some servers. Those servers were ones that, that were really important to them. They, they were servers that host hospitals' x-rays, CAT scans, and, and MRIs. And the ransomware attackers left behind a, a ransom note that essentially said the hospital had 48 hours to pay um, or the price would double. The hospital ultimately, um, in about two weeks' time, made the decision that that they did have to pay, and they paid approximately $100,000 in Bitcoin in, in two installments. And the atta- attackers gave the hospital the, the decryption keys to, to unlock their, their servers. Um, we also know that that Kansas hospital contacted the FBI following the attack, and that as a result of that notification, the FBI was able to identify um, what was previously an unknown ransomware malware um, called Maui. The FBI then uh, started to track the funds that that the hospital had paid in, in Bitcoin. Um, the audience may be familiar with these Bitcoin transactions. Every transaction is... Uh, is registered on on the Bitcoin blockchain. And using those investigative tools, the FBI was able to uh, find a virtual currency exchange where the ransomware payment was deposited to. And in August of 2021, obtained records from that currency exchange through, um, through, through legal process. Um, the FBI was then able to track payments to a second virtual currency exchange and uh, and ultimately uh, identified that that those accounts were accessed by a Hong Kong-based IP address that uh, law enforcement presumed to be uh, some money launderers who assisted North Korean cyber actors in in cashing out Bitcoin ransom payments into into fiat currency. So that's you know that's one of the entities that we we learned about. This the second is a Colorado medical provider um, that also made. Uh, a ransom payment to to this group, uh, approximately one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in in Bitcoin, and a similar story here. The FBI was able to follow the money essentially and trace the transactions from from this medical provider through to to the criminal group. Although one notable difference here is that um, it, it appears, based off of the court documents, that. Um, the FBI went to this Colorado medical provider rather than the medical provider um, voluntarily disclosing the 
the incident to to law enforcement. You know, we hear about uh, folks who are up to this, you know, using things like tumblers to try to to hide the transactions or, or obfuscate them. Um, I mean, to what degree does this speak to the FBI and the Department of Justice being able to unwind these things? And does that put the the criminals on alert that perhaps uh, it's not as easy to 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 launder the money as they thought it was? David, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, this, this case, like other ransomware recoveries, and, and there have been a number of them this year alone, they continue to highlight that that the Department of Justice really does have the ability to follow the money on on the blockchain. That there is um, th- that that anonymity is not foolproof, even when you're talking about these these virtual currencies. And um, the court documents in this case show how the FBI step by step was able to follow follow the money from the victims through to the the accounts where they were held and in this case able to the investigators were able to use legal process to um, track down who who owned these accounts and ultimately to seize the funds and and get that money back into into the hands of victims as opposed to the the crooks who who are who are, who are trying to, to you know to steal these funds for their own purposes. Now, when you you say they're able to use you know legal processes, I mean, is this is this an international effort? Is this you know dealing with our allies uh, to be able to track these sorts of things down? It is something that involves a lot of international partners. So criminals are wise enough to know that if they leave these assets in the United States, they're more likely to uh, to be caught or, you know, or leave them in the possession of, of U.S.-based entities. And so they often try to move these funds to jurisdictions that, that they think are going to be more favorable. Increasingly, we're seeing that U.S. law enforcement has been able to partner with, um, with, with law enforcement in other countries to get records from those countries, to get records from, from virtual currency exchanges or, or other institutions in those countries, and ultimately to affect arrests. We have seen um, law enforcement track down people responsible for laundering money, people responsible for developing the malware and deploying ransomware um, uh, against victim networks. And so all of this is is part of a strategy of the department to raise the costs of of engaging in this activity and hopefully to uh, deter those who would think about entering the ransomware space from um, from from doing so. Uh, the, the reality is that a, a lot of um, there there are a lot of well educated uh, individuals who who see this as cost free activity in certain countries and. Um, and, and the goal of the Department of Justice's work is is to really see make those individuals see that there are costs to their activities and um, and to make them choose a, another life, hopefully, before they get too far down the path. What insights can you share with us in terms of um, the Department of Justice's choices in how they went about this? The you know the 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 fact that they didn't announce the civil enforcement action. Uh, you know those sorts of things. Is what does that speak to in terms of how the DOJ is choosing to come at these these uh, these events? What I think it shows is that the Department of Justice isn't just interested in 
investigating crime that has already occurred and um and 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 charging that type of crime and hopefully finding the people responsible and holding them accountable certainly that is an important function for the department of justice but it's not the only one and what we've seen here is that they they've adopted a strategy to disrupt these actors from being able to use their capabilities, um, from, from being able to take advantage of their ill-gotten gains and to, to not just play defense, but also to play some, some offense. And, and some of those capabilities include, as you note, using search warrants and, and court orders to, to seize, uh, stolen funds. They, they've also been used to seize domains, command and control servers, other infrastructure that's used by these cyber criminals uh, with a goal of, of, of disabling their ability to, um, to, to, to conduct these types of attacks against uh, the U.S. private sector and, and really the global private sector. And we have seen the Department of Justice use these kinds of seizure tools to take down global botnets um, which uh, some of them are controlled by uh, state-sponsored groups, other by others by by criminal groups. Um, we've seen them use search warrants coupled with other technical tools to remove malware from from victim systems to help um, help victims avoid the type of of compromise uh, from from these sophisticated actors that that the government is concerned about. And, and we've also seen like we saw in this particular ransom case, the use of search warrants and, and civil asset forfeiture authorities to seize the cryptocurrency wallets, the stolen property, and and where possible to, to return it to victims. Do you suppose that, that this is making a dent? I mean, you know, this was, uh, we're dealing with North Korea here, who of course, uh, you know, sort of has a unique position on the global stage. Um, what do you think here? I mean, is... Is this just low-hanging fruit, or, or is this, does this make a, a real difference on the global stage? I think time will tell. It's, it's, that is the, the key question. Um, we have seen some early signs that this activity is, is helping. We have seen on, on the margins that fewer victims are, are paying ransoms, uh, at least as a, as a percentage of, of the victims that are being attacked, um, we have seen that the amount that is being paid by victims on on average has has gone down um, as well in in recent months. the The data is 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 still out though. I, I think we we need to see a longer trend to really get a sense for what impact this um, the, these government actions are having. And, and frankly, there may also be some some other variables that are at play for why we're seeing a um, a, a reduction. In this particular case, what about those healthcare organizations that got hit here? I mean, was it was it ultimately a happy ending for them? Did they did they get their funds back? Do we know? Well, they are in in the process of of getting their funds back. Um, the government has filed motions to uh, to forfeit those funds and to give them back to the victims. That that process usually takes some time. The reality is, even if you get the money that you paid in ransom back, that that really is only part of the cost of these incidents. Uh, there are impacts in terms of operational disruptions. We don't know uh, what the impact of these systems being down was on patients who who needed care uh, from these 
from from these medical institutions. And so there are there are costs that where it's really hard to ever make victims whole from these ransomware attacks. And so part of what we need to do as um, as a society really is is to is to prevent these attacks from happening in the per- first place and, and making organizations more resilient to these attacks, ensuring that they have the redundancies and the backup systems in place that if if you are the victim of one of these attacks allows you to recover quickly and, and get back on on your feet because the the reality is the the ransom the value of the ransom paid is is only a small fraction of of the ultimate cost of these incidents to to the victims who experience them. What do you think? It's really a fascinating story. I, I kind of uh, am a little encouraged by the capabilities of the Department of Justice to access the blockchain mm. and to block the uh, financial transactions involving cryptocurrency. Uh, this isn't easy. And when you have, we're talking about a scale of millions of ransomware attacks and they are increasing exponentially. Eventually, that's going to exceed the capabilities of the Justice Department, even in high-profile cases involving foreign actors. Um, So, you know, I think we're going to have to add resources to the Computer Crimes Division of the Department of Justice. But I I found it to be interesting and and encouraging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Alex Iftemy from Morrison Forster for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.